Well, I want to invite you men to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you would do that this evening as we get started. I'd like to exhort us tonight to be a Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 man on a Sunday. Now, I did a little bit of just code language, just as a way to like trigger our memory a little bit and uh, have this passage kind of stick our, in our mind, almost like you ever get a code for, a, uh, like for your um, garage code, or maybe you have to punch in a code in your phone, it's like you have to remember that number. Well, I want you to remember this number and attach it to your thinking uh, when you think about how to think about Sundays. So I want us to do that this evening by looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 uh, through 25. Now, I was thinking tonight, there's something pretty simple and spectacular and satisfying about a group of Christian men coming together and eating steak. Wasn't that good tonight? We... We came in, and they had all these uh, appetizers laid out for us, and then we go in and just fill our plates, and I saw a bunch of guys get seconds and thirds, and I think there's still leftovers. And I think, I think we have dessert coming, right? So that's, uh, that's a blessing, and I'm very, I always, always have room for dessert. Um, and so, uh, Tim, great job. Thanks so much for all of your labors and uh, serving, and the church folks who jumped in. There's a lot that goes into an event like this, and it's been fun even to communicate with uh, Pastor Tim, and just see his heart uh, for the Lord and to serve us in this way. So thank you. You have men figured out. Uh, we don't have uh, no flowers at the tables. No decorations. We even have had styrofoam plates, and it was awesome because we had, we had good meat. It's, it's, it's great. So thank you for all that you've done. You know what, there's also something special about Christian men coming together for a spiritual meal. And it's my task this evening um, to prepare and to present a spiritual meal for us, um, some spiritual food. And so I'm going to do so around this topic, the godly man on a Sunday. I don't know if you've thought about this question before being here tonight, but what, what constitutes a godly man on a Sunday? I mean, it's a little bit of an interesting question. I don't know where your mind goes or what direction your mind takes you when you think about that question, but the answer to this question is probably shaped by your understanding of godliness, which really is a question that cuts to the very heart of who we are in our relationship before God. It's, it's not focused on externals. It's probably also shaped by your understanding of a Sunday, right? Why do we gather? What's the purpose of our gathering? Where should we look to help us think through this question? Well, in examining passages that rise to the surface, that give us instruction on our responsibility and approach to the Sunday gathering, it really, um, it really this one rises to the surface, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And so we're going to use this passage to help us think about, to learn, from, and hopefully make good application for how we as men should approach the Sunday gathering. So to do so, I'm actually like to borrow the meal metaphor that we've kind of already experienced tonight through food. Um, 
And I'd like to present this in three sections with three big questions. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an appetizer. And that's going to be under the question, why do I need to be a Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 man on a Sunday? Okay, so we'll explore that. Secondly, we're going to have the main course. And of course, the main course needs to be the word of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, walk through that passage under the question, how does this passage instruct a man's view of a Sunday? And then finally, the dessert. And for the dessert, I'd like to save a bunch of application points and ask the question with that, how are some practical ways that I can be a Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 man on a Sunday? Um, and just have just a just several platters full of little desserts that you can, you know, maybe take one that might apply to you. And, and, and my, my prayer is that this is really helpful for, to, for us tonight. So, so let's, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you so much for um, the men that have gathered tonight. Thank you for their apparent desire to be fed spiritually. And I pray, God, that as we take a look at your word, God, would your spirit instruct us? Would you help us? to make application that would bear fruit as, God, we want to persevere in the faith all the more as we see the day approaching. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin with the appetizer. Why do I need to be a H10-1925 man on a Sunday? Well, it's possible to make too much of a Sunday gathering if it's to the neglect of valuing and involving ourselves in other body life things that take place outside of the confines of a Sunday, it's also certainly possible that in many ways we make too little of Sundays. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to approach a Sunday with a heart that is right with God and just inflamed before God? to come to church motivated by a robust understanding of a right theology of the local church and my place in it, to obediently live out in 2023 what the early church gave themselves to, as we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47, a devotion to the teaching of God's word, a devotion to all that's involved with the concept of mutual fellowship, that we would be so in tune with the 59 one another commands in the New Testament that we pull up to the church with a voice that's ready to sing with and to one another. That we have eyes that are on the look for needs to minister to. That we have a tongue ready to give a word of encouragement in a prayer request, that we have ears ready to hear the gospel rehearsed that we need to have rehearsed, and that there's a readiness to listen to the needs of others. Now, with a type of motivation that realizes that God uses mutual ministry in our very perseverance in the faith. But then there's reality, right? There's our hearts that are prone to wander. There's a reality for all of us that that we need some encouragement. Maybe we need some gentle prodding. Maybe we need some motivation or some reminders. And certainly some instruction from God's word about our approach to Sunday. So men, we all, for various reasons, 
I think, have areas about our approach to Sunday that in some ways could be hypocritical, maybe distorted, maybe off-center, maybe under-prioritized, maybe misinformed regarding our preparation for and our participation in the Sunday gathering. So what are some ways that we can maybe identify some blind spots or some misunderstanding or some misprioritizing that our hearts might need a little prodding in by the Word of God? I was thinking maybe, maybe this approach will help. Have you seen Dude Perfect? Okay. I know that rings true of the younger generation. How many of you have seen Dude Perfect videos? Okay, okay, good. So we're, we're over 50%. If you're not familiar with Dude Perfect, this is a viral YouTube group of guys that came, became popular for making trick shot videos, which turn into really an empire of family-friendly entertainment videos. Now, one of the forms of videos that they put out is called stereotype videos. I don't know if you've seen some of their stereotype videos. Uh, pretty funny. Where they, through humor and intentional exaggeration, identify stereotypes of maybe an activity or an event that we're familiar with. For example, they have a stereotype video of hunting, and they pull out all the stereotypes that have to do with hunters. They have stereotype videos of fishing. Now, there's one that I think is pretty funny. It's, it's gym stereotypes. I don't know if you've been to the gym and kind of identify certain, certain, certain ways that people handle themselves. Well, in this uh, gym stereotype video, they identify several different like, kind of quirky things uh, that, you, that maybe you can identify with. For example, here's, here's a bunch of them. They have like Mr. Excuses, where there's somebody's always got an excuse for why they don't come to the gym. They identify the screamer. I mean, the guy that's like putting up the weights, and every time he's got to yell, you know, let out a loud yell, even if only he has like five-pound dumbbells. <laughs> the mirror magnet, the guy that's got like weak triceps, but he's always going to the mirror and like checking himself out there. Um, the singer, the guy that's always whistling and singing, he's got headphones on. You know, the sweater, the guy that's like drenched in sweat before he even comes in. Um, I think there's even a yoga guy. I didn't have that up there. That's kind of weird. Um, talkative Timmy, the guy that's just going around talking to everybody, he's not there to lift weights. Um, uh, protein guy, that's just guys that's always downing creatine and protein. Um, and they always, they always put in the rage monster, which I think is kind of funny. So these stereotypes are identifiable. They make us laugh. But I was thinking this, what about some stereotypes about men on a Sunday? So kind of with partial humor, partial exaggeration, and partial seriousness, what are some stereotypes about men on a Sunday that we could think through? So I was thinking maybe we should start with this one. Let's call him the sleeper. Now, maybe you can identify with this. We all are probably guilty of this from one time to another. But... I actually do have a distinct memory. There was one time I was preaching in a church service, and I, like, I thought it was like, I thought it was a great message, you know? And I'm like just going to town and preaching, 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 and like, like this is so good, right? And I look down, and there's this guy, that I'm, and he's just sawing logs. And it was kind of like a moment of humility where it's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's not so great. But, but we can identify with this. Um, now, maybe the reason somebody's sleeping is because they legitimately were working a midnight shift, and it's just good that they're there. But maybe the reason that they're sleeping is because they were up late. 
Maybe they come in with a fog in their mind. And the sleeping activity is indicative of this man's distant heart and inattention to the word. In fact, in his dream, he's thinking about the football game. He's there bodily, but mentally he's actually checked out. He's there, but his heart is actually adrift. He's, in fact, not even sure why he's there. Well, this man could use a huge dose of Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. An urging to wake up to the fact that the gospel calls us to obedience and activity, not to inactivity and faltering. Let's think about somebody else. Let's call him the spectator. The spectator is a well-cultured American. He frequents sporting events and concerts. In fact, he's a great consumer. He's a great onlooker. In fact, when he comes to church, he wants to have the best parking space, and he has the seat that he always sits in because he wants a good seat. And throughout the service, he critically evaluates service times, service elements. If the service starts late, he's looking at his watch. If the preacher goes a minute over, he rolls his eyes and points to his watch. When the singing is going, he's actually not singing much because he's busy observing all the things going on in the service. When When the pastor's preaching, he's not even taking notes or seeming to be too engaged. In fact, this man's attendance is fairly irregular because the reality is is that he views church attendance as just like another event that he would go to. When there's a fellowship after the church, he usually jets out because it doesn't fit his schedule. Now, the spectator needs some Hebrews 10. Because he needs to realize that the New Testament does not talk about the gathering of a local church in spectator language, but in participation terms. In fact, his habitual absences, whether bodily or mentally, needs a call to the first part of Hebrews 10.25. And that by neglecting this, he is not only harming himself, but he's actually not contributing to others. Let's go on to this one. Mr. Independent. Now, Mr. Independent, he's smart. He's successful, he's stable, he's a capable person. He's pretty self-sufficient. He's a good problem solver, he's learned in theology. He knows the answers to most theological questions. In fact, his podcast list is just fully loaded. He's strong in giving and helping, uh, but he struggles in actually receiving helps. Truly, he's comfortable with just staying home and watching church online. He views others as needy, but he really doesn't view himself as needy. He's an expert at not really letting people into his heart. In fact, his technological dependence makes him independent from face-to-face mutual edification. He needs a reminder from Hebrews 10.23. But he needs to see that the perseverance is cultivated in the context of mutual edification. He needs to believe that not only um, do others need him, but 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 that he needs others. Now let's go on to the next one. Mr. Tradition. Mr. Tradition has not missed a Sunday in years. He's never late. He always wears a tie. His, his, he, he has his seat. He hangs, he hangs his hat on his church attendance, on merely being there. He's grown to think that the church is the building. He barely opens his lip during singing, and he doesn't crack his Bible during preaching. He has a judgmental eye towards others with differences on the matter of 
the conscience. After the service, um, his, after the service, he, he actually jets. His devotional life is barren, and he loves, actually, he loves the first part of Hebrews 10.25, but he neglects the rest of Hebrews 10.25. His heart is actually far from God. He serves, but he doesn't, but he doesn't soak. Genuine encouragement to others is actually a foreign concept to him. What he needs is to see the second part of Hebrews 10.25, and he needs the work of Jesus to humble him. Now let's do one last one here. Mr. Inhibited. Now, Mr. Inhibited, he is actually, comes to church, and he's scared by all the put-together people in the church. He thinks he's the only one that struggles, and he actually believes that he doesn't have much to contribute to others because he doesn't have much knowledge or experience. He has a deep desire to be discipled, but he doesn't think that he can help anybody else. Now, what this person needs is to view himself as a part of the body with an honesty and a hunger before God that he actually could help others who are in need. Now, while none of us fit any of these stereotypes perfectly, we all have a unique combination of either distorted or under-prioritized or misinformed habits regarding the prioritization, the preparation for a Sunday. Now, all of these, I think, are met by good instruction of Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. So let's let this passage inform us tonight. So, with your Bibles open to Hebrews 10.25, let's go to the main course together, okay? So I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open, because we're going to look at this passage, we're going to work through it, be familiar with what God's Word says. Now, rather than just proof texting and like jumping to the end of the passage that talks about our gathering, I think it's really helpful us to, to really work through the whole thing. So that's what we're going to do in our time. So let's begin by reading reading the passage together. Hebrews 10, 19-24. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and from our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now let's begin, before we walk through the passage, I want to just give some initial observations about this passage to kind of get us into it. Now if we were to just jump in without really giving a context, I think we might be doing ourselves a little bit of a disservice because this is kind of like the, if, if you could picture it as a, like a sports analogy, this is kind of like the, the slam dunk or the home run part of really, I think, the whole book of Hebrews. And so I don't know if you've ever seen a sports like clip, maybe a three-second or five-second clip where you kind of see the, the cool part at the end, but it misses context. And I think that's a little bit of the way that it is here because at the beginning of these first couple of verses of the passage, it gives a little bit of, I think, of a microcosm of everything, a summary of everything that's been taught all the way up until this point in chapter 10. And so it would serve us well to really think through all that that's taking place. And it's a little bit of a hinge passage where now it's summarizing. It's then beginning to give 
a lot more specific collective exhortations which will carry its way through the end of the book. And so it's good for us to think through this. Now, um, so let's look at the setting of the passage, okay? The therefore. The therefore is really, really important. Of course, we all know when there's a therefore, what do we do? We stop to see what it's there for. And so this really ties not only the preceding passage, but I think really the, the entire book up into this point. If we were to actually read the passage, um, not just the passage, but if we had time to just read the whole book of Hebrews up to this point, we would feel like we have just heard a powerful sermon. It really reads like a sermon. And while the, while the author and the audience and the precision of the audience are a little bit mysterious, the message of Hebrews is very clear. And we really can't miss it. It's not vague. In fact, if you were to read all the way up into this point, I think your attention would be arrested by a couple of major things. One, you would be exuberant about the superiority of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, we have perhaps the most extensive and grand exposition on the person of God the Son. In fact, you would probably be led to worship by the superiority of Jesus because he's better than the angels, than Moses, than the Old Testament priesthood. There's constant arguments from the lesser to the greater for how great that he is. We see that he's the supreme creator. He bears the very character of God because he is God. He's in control of all things. He's the cleanser of sin. And nothing is to be compared to Jesus Christ. And we have this exposition of Christ. But then we have this other thing going on. The alternative beat in the cadence in this sermon is not just the exposition of Jesus, but the exhortation to not quit, to not give up, to not fall away, to finish the race. And so we have both of these things. And so if I were to say that what, what's kind of the big message of Hebrews, I would put it this way, we have a full faith because of Jesus. And that's where our confidence is. And at the same time, those who have a full faith must be faithful. And we need to feel this tension because this is the way the book of Hebrews is. And it is this idea and mindset that we need to approach this passage as we look at it tonight and lead to application for our topic tonight. And so we get to chapter 10, verse number 19, and we see a little bit of a summarization of this doctrine that's taught, and then it leads into exhortation, which leads to this. Let's take a, just what's the structure of this passage? And I just want to say briefly to point out a couple of things. So if you would look in your Bibles and point out a couple of things. Can you find the two since we haves? They're in verses 19 through 21. If you're into writing in your Bible, you could circle them. There's two since-we-haves. This would be like the indicative, or we could say the blessings that we have. And then in verses 22 through 25, we find three lettuces. Let us, let us, let us. And these are more, we could say, imperatives or urgings based on, so the indicative drives the imperative. Now, this tees us up for a really, really simple outline. If we don't get the structure of this outline, then we, we're really missing it. Um, and so that's what we're going to flow through tonight. 
Now, let's just, one last quick thing about this. I want to look at the sequence of the exhortations of the let us's. Just a, a simple observation that it moves really from a relationship with God, draw near to him, and then it finishes with how that relates to one another. And I think that's significant just for our note as we work through that. Now, what's the big lesson of this passage? And this is the way I've worded it through thinking through it tonight. The work of Jesus directs how we relate to God, how we persevere in the faith, and how we relate to other believers. I think that's really the central message of these verses tonight. The question of our godliness on a Sunday is really dictated by how we relate to God and how we relate to other believers. So how does the work of Jesus direct this? If, if the work of Jesus directs this, then let's ask our first big question. What must we realize that we have in Jesus? And that's really the first point, verses 19 through 20, 21. What do we have in Jesus? Now, the Jewish believers under persecution needed to be reminded of what they possessed in Christ. Do you ever need reminded of something that you have that you kind of take for granted? I remember having a conversation with somebody it was some time ago. Um, and it was an interesting conversation. He actually lived near the Swiss Alps. And I was intrigued by that, so I started asking him some questions. I'm like, you know, he, he lived near, I mean, Alps are so amazing. They make the Rocky Mountains look, small, like, small. Um, and he lived near some, like, awesome castles and stuff. So I'm like, what do, what do you like to do for, for fun? And his answer to me was like, he kind of paused. And I'm like, this should be, like, easy answer. And he's like, well, there's, like, a bird museum down the road. And in my mind, I'm like, you're kidding me, right? You live next to the Swiss Alps and castles, and that's not one of your favorite things to do. And in my heart, I was thinking, do you realize what you have? Now, it is with that that I think that we need to approach these since we have statements. Believer, man, do you realize what you have in Jesus Christ? Now, I want to identify three possessions that we have in this passage, okay? The first is the first we have. We have confident access, verses 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter. What, what is he saying here? Well, Jesus did something to allow me to have a present and ongoing access into the sanctuary of the heavens. And we should acknowledge this and be amazed by this. So why is confident access a possession that is so significant? Well, I think the text gives us a couple of reasons. So if you would look, I want to say this first, that because of there's a contrast going on. A contrast between the old and the new. Have you ever been frustrated by a lack of access to something? I have, I've had this, this dryer that's had some issues. Like it got really noisy and there's just like this like little pulley thing in there that needs replacing. It's really squeaky. So I was just trying to like go, like, like I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be the man. I'm going to go fix this. And, and like the back of the dryer is like welded shut. There's like no access panel. And I, I looked up these YouTubes about like how to do it. I'm like, oh, this would be easy. 15, they said 15 minute fix or whatever. And I'm like, you cannot get into the dryer. You just can't do it. 
So finally, I figured out you can take the front flap down, but then to get to it, you kind of have to like wrap your arms around and try to get to this part. And I still haven't fixed it. It like still squeaks really, really loudly. Because I've been under this perpetual frustration of a lack of access. But how, what would it be to be in the shoes of somebody that lived when this book was written, where they grew up under really the Old Testament system, and now Jesus comes in and he does something new and he does something different? Well, the Old Covenant was limited in who could enter in the presence of God. There was a thick veil. The Old Covenant was limited to fixed times and in fixed ways. The high priest could enter at certain times and under strict instruction. There was continual sacrifice of animals. So after centuries of sacrifices, now Jesus comes and he inaugurates this amazing new way. And so by the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And it is by the new and living way that Jesus inaugurated a new way that made the old obsolete. Therefore, believers are not limited. There's a continual confident access to God. Now, lest we become arrogantly confident, we have to remember this is significant because of this. There's a cost. What does the text say? It says it is through, by his blood, through the ripping of the veil, through his flesh, through the curtain. Matthew chapter 7, 27 verse 51 talks about when Jesus was being crucified. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now this is a, if we lived in this time and understood, like if we read Leviticus more and we read the book of Hebrews more, or if we lived in this time and then realized the significance of what happened, Jesus, the once for all sacrifice doing this, and the veil was ripped in two, Wow, what an amazing thing because Jesus paid by the shedding of his blood, the ripping of his body, he paid for our redemption. And this is the basis of our access to him. And it's only by him. So we can't have this confident access attitude to God that's apart from through Jesus. It's all because of him and with him and through him. We have this complete confidence. We have access to the holy place of God. It's only by him. Now, about uh, not quite a year ago, I, I uh, experienced something super fun with my, with my son. I had this idea that I was going to take my son to a Kansas Jayhawk basketball game in Lawrence, Kansas. Now, if you've never been to a... a basketball game at the University of Kansas, I would highly recommend trying it. It's probably the, the number one place of college basketball. That is not just my opinion. Um, I could go into a whole thing about it, but I won't. But I, I, I seriously, I wanted to take my son to a Kansas basketball game. I went as a kid, and uh, we talked about doing this. So I got tickets, and I set this up. We were going to do a road trip, and we went to a Kansas basketball game, conference game last year. And um, so I got the tickets, and uh, I, I, I had this heart of, like, I want to, I want to have a, as fun of a time as I can with my son, and I want to make it awesome for him. 
And so I was thinking of all these things, like this idea dawned on me, like there was, there was this player that used to play for the University of Kansas in the early 2000s. His name's Wayne Simeon. He was an All-American, um, ended up playing in the NBA, won an NBA championship with the Miami Heat. Then he actually he became a believer actually in college. He quit the NBA to go into the ministry. Strong believer. Go, we moved back to Lawrence, started this ministry. And I, I actually got to met him, meet him several years ago. He, when we were at Northland, he came and, and visited, and I got to, like, for a basketball camp thing, and I talked to him at length. Uh, and it was a really, really cool experience. So the idea dawned on me, because since then, he's gone back to the University of Kansas, and he's on staff there as kind of like a chaplain. Uh, and I thought, what, what if I tried to contact Wayne Simeon and just be like, hey, remember me? <laughs> like, hey, I want to make this special for my son. And I, so I actually, I found, I didn't even know, like there was this email form you could do it online, just like connect with his whatever. So I just filled it out, kind of explained we're going to be coming. And uh, an hour later, I get a text from him saying, hey man, this is Wayne. I'm like, whoa. He's like, uh, yeah, so glad you guys are coming. Uh, call me when you get down here and, and, and we'll, I'll connect with you. So I'm like, whoa. So, so we... So I was like, I was like super giddy about this. I'm like, like, how's this gonna happen? What's is, is he just gonna meet us to take a picture? Or is it what's what's gonna happen? So like the whole like the whole preparation, we're just like super super nervous. So we get to the game, we're outside in the crowd, and and I call him, and he's like, uh, yeah, meet me inside by the locker room uh, when the doors open. So I'm like, sweet. So we go in, we meet in the locker room. Now this guy, he's a pretty de- commanding presence, super tall. He's like he's kind of a legend there. His jersey re- retired in the Anfield House, and so like when he he showed up, like people are wanting pictures with him, and so he kind of made a beeline to me. He's like, okay, follow me. He's like, I'm gonna put my head down. I'm not gonna make eye contact with me. Just follow me. So he he goes and he goes to this doorway and he cu- gets out into this back hallway, and we're just with him. And then he kind of like, okay, well, so then so then he's like, okay, ah. Uh, um, we're gonna, I'm just going to take you through some back, back stuff and kind of show you some stuff behind the scenes. And we're just like, this is awesome. So he ends up taking us through these back hallways, and he, and he gets to this one door, and it's just, just us. And he, uh, he puts his thumb on this door, and like, it opens up this other door, and he takes us into the back offices where the coaches are. And there's this, the big lobby, there's all the trophies of like the Final Fours, the many, many Final Fours, and uh, the, the national championships and all this. And so we're looking at all these trophies and all this stuff, and, and, I'm, and we're just had the time of our life. I think I got a picture. Yeah. So here's a picture, us and Wayne Simeon. So I, we, and we had a, just a tremendous time, and, then, and then, uh, then he took us back out to the lobby where all the other people were. And uh, it was awesome. But I was thinking about that. We had privileged access to a place that other people didn't have, and it was not because of anything about me. I mean, if I would have gone to the security guard by me and just been like, hey, can I go back there? I mean, not a chance. But Wayne Simeon, he had this thing that said, full access. And he had his thumbprint that worked on all the doors. With him, we had complete access. Now, I hope you understand that why I'm bringing this out, because we have incredible access way more significantly because of the work of Jesus. Now, this should humble us. It should give us bold confidence with humility, without fear that we can come to God through Christ. There's no separation. There's no fear. We have 
confident access. What's the second possession? We have continual advocate. I want you to notice verse number 21. And since we have a great high priest, so if the first possession is more of an internal attitude that God has given us, this possession is a person. It's a present reality, and it's the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus is greater because he did what the old covenant priest could not do. Hebrews 7, 23-25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is qualified Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, a familiar cross-reference to this passage, tells us that we have a high priest that has passed into the heavens and he's able to do it because he sympathized with us as human. And as God, he passed into the heavens. And so he invites us to draw near to the throne of grace because he's qualified. He was both the offerer and the offering. Jesus makes it so that we can come to him. We have this possession. And he is reigning over the house of God, the the text says. And this is a present reality. Jesus is there and we have access because of Jesus. And he is our advocate. And it's continuing, ongoing ministry of who Jesus is. Believer, do you know that you have this privilege? Now there's a third possession that we have. Now, this is not explicitly stated by the sense words, but it's implicitly stated as we study. We have a communal accountability. Now, I want you to notice at the very beginning of our passage, it said, therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers. Now, what Jesus did was that he, through his death and work, made us to be a part of his family. When we belong to Christ, it creates a community in which we belong to each other. And I want you to notice the familial language all around this text. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Fast our, confession, our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He also uses the language of plurals. Did you notice this in the passage? Okay, he, there's, there's a bunch of we language. Since we, the let us. In verses 24 and 25, we actually have some other language that's used. We have one another. We have together. At the end of the previous verse, it said that Jesus is Lord over the household of of believers. So we need to realize that because of what Jesus has done, it actually has put us into a community with siblings to whom we bear responsibility. Now, as we finish up thinking about these three possessions... Let's just bear these things in mind. Okay, we have confident access. We have a continual advocate. And we have, a com- we have communal accountability because of what Jesus has done. Now this is the indicative. This is the, the blessing. This is what we have in Jesus. So then we shift to the whole second part. Point number two then is this. How do we respond? Okay, we should respond to what Jesus has given us by obeying the urgings that are here. And they're the three let us's. So how ought we to respond to this 
access, advocate, and accountability that we have? Should we just say, hey, I got saved, I'm good? Should we respond by abusing the grace of God? Should we respond to it with a spiritual aloofness? And I think we would all agree, no, there should be fruit. There should be faithfulness. There ought to be perseverance in the faith that looks like obedient response to what Jesus has done. The gifts mean go. So what are these three urgings? The first one, let us, I'm saying it this way, let us confidently come to God in faith. Verse number 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now this invitation to draw near to God is not only a privilege, it's actually a responsibility. We are called to do this, and we're called to do it continually in all of our worship, both personally and corporately. We have continued, complete access. So how do we draw near? Well, I think we just let the text teach us. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I want to call this part of it this, with complete freedom. Okay, so the word true is the idea of authentic. And through thinking about it and studying it, I really think it has the idea of of having a conscious awareness of being free from guilt. It's really the opposite of an unbelieving heart or a hiding heart or a distant heart. It's not the idea of God's lucky to have me. It's it's the idea of God loves me and he's redeemed me so there's no hiding of my inadequacies. There's no hesitation. We have a complete freedom and we are called to draw near. Also, I think the text tells us that we should draw near with complete forgiveness. Now, I say that because look at the passage. After it says, full assurance of faith, it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. Now, what is that talking about? Now, if, if we've read the whole book of Hebrews, if we've read the book of Le- Leviticus, or if we're familiar with this, it's, it's obvious Old Testament language that's woven in here to help make a point. It's beautiful imagery where the priest would sprinkle the, the blood of animals over objects to purify them. And then he would wash himself to be purified. And all of this was a shadow appointing to the real cleansing that would be brought in Jesus Christ. And so figuratively speaking, we are cleaned from the inside and outside. So there's this inside-outside argumentation that I think is really giving us a picture of just full, full complete forgiveness. You know, the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 is realized in Jesus. We have a new heart. We have a clean conscience. Therefore, draw near. Now, what should this do to our hearts? I mean, like, you look at a guy on a Sunday and it's like, does this mean anything to you? We should come to God in prayer and supplication with confidence. This should drive us to confess our sin on the basis of Jesus, not on the basis of feeling worthy because we're not worthy. It should cause us to sing songs of deliverance, even in church, that touch our hearts and invoke praise because of this reality. I mean, when the congregation sings, Jesus paid it all, does that mean anything to you? How about, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Or you sing, before the throne of God above, I have this strong and perfect plea. I mean, this should should invoke 
praise and worship because of what Jesus has done. It shouldn't lead to abusing grace. So what's the, what's the next exhortation? Letter B. I'm saying it this way. Based on verse 23, if you want to look at that. Let us continually cling to the gospel with hope. It's how I've worded it. Thinking through, what, what does verse 23 say? It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. So what is this verse saying? Okay, let us hold fast. I'm going to say it in two statements to kind of help us to try to, try to understand what's, what, what's going on here. I'm going to say, first of all, it's, it's a call for the continuation of the saints. We're called to look to Jesus and run. Here, here the believers are exhorted to hold firmly or to stick firmly to the content of their hope. And certainly there were many who were falling away. It's, it's, a, it's a profession of belief. But what is the confession of the hope? I mean, it's, I, I think it's, it's the confession that my hope is not in me. It's, the, it's not my ability to hope, but it's the confession that I only have one hope, and that's Jesus. And there is a starting point to this. There, there's, there's, a, there's a point of belief, but there's also a continuation and I think we understand that not everybody that makes a profession makes it to the end. But we're called to unswervingly stick to it and not go back. And we're warned all throughout the book of Hebrews of this. This is not the first time this call is made. Hebrews 3 verse 6 says, if indeed we hold fast. I think this is similar to Pauline language in in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, when it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. So we do have this real and present danger where we're, 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 we're bombarded with reasons to give up, to disbelieve, to not believe the gospel in its sufficiency, to add to the gospel, to take away from the gospel. And if we think that this, this, this call really makes it so that I am the one that has to save myself, I think we're missing the point of the gospel. But there is this call to continue based on the hope. And now, now if we just stop there halfway through this verse, it would be like, okay, but, but the Holy Spirit has given us the rest of the verse. What does it say? For he who promised is faithful. This is comfort from the constancy of God. The basis of our salvation is the faithfulness of God. It's, 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 it's holding unashamedly to what God says about our future. What he says he will do, and the book of Hebrews says he cannot lie. He's the anchor of our soul. Hebrews 4.14, which is a parallel passage, actually kind of, it says, since we have a great high priest... Let us hold fast. This verse says, cling because God is faithful. But the indicative drives the imperative. Now we are bombarded with reasons to give up on what we believe. But I think, I think understanding this point does even shape the way we think about Sunday because it should help us to come with a sense of, of healthy urgency where I need the word. I need to look for reminders about the gospel. I need to look for the promises of God. I need to take notes and study the word because I need to obey. I need to finish. 
I need to affirm these truths with other believers who might be tempted to fall away. Now this leads to the third exhortation, the third let us, that we see in this passage. And this is verses 24 and 25. Now this next one starts to get really practical to our big question tonight, okay? Maybe this is the verses that you think of that you have memorized from this passage. So verse 24, I'm putting it this way. Let us considerately compel one another to love. Would you look at your Bibles, please? And I really want, I really want you to see what, the, what this, this is so instructive, okay? So would you look at your Bibles, verse 24. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Because that's the first part of it. Now these verses give us specific instruction on what we have in Jesus and what this means for how we relate to the church and particularly how and when we gather as a body, how we prepare for the gathering, how we prioritize our Sunday gathering, and how we participate. And there's a very much a horizontal aspect to this part of the passage. So let's look carefully and let's consider the command to consider. And I want to say that this, this the, the, like look at the verse, it says, consider how to stir up one another. Those two, I think we need to see together, and I've worded it this way. Meditate how to motivate. Okay, so think about that for a second. So let's think about these words. The word consider, it means to give careful thought, to notice, to show concern for. Like embedded in this word is the idea of creative energy and brainstorming. It requires, one author put it this way, looking past your own nose to the needs of others. So it requires that forethought. Now, if you're like me, I suspect maybe some of you are, you're not a great at gift giving. My wife is a tremendous gift giver. And I mean that. Like she will, she will like, was a birthday, Father's Day, whatever it is, like months in advance, she's like thinking of a perfect gift for me. It's like she knows me so well, and she'll be like, what, what would he like? And she just, it's like she'll get a gift, and I'm like, how did you think of that? Like, that's amazing. Like, I, don't, I couldn't even think of that for myself. And she does this like in advance, and she does it all the time. She's amazing at it. And now I, on the other hand, I'm kind of like a day before Valentine's in the day, I'm like, uh, uh, go pick up some flowers. I mean, like, like, I don't put careful thought into it. But I think, I think what's behind this word is what a good gift giver does. It considers the person. It thinks about it in a customized way with a goal in mind. And I think, I think we need to really consider that with the way we approach other believers. And then it says to stir up. Now, this is an interesting word. It's actually only used one other time in the New Testament, and in that use, it's actually used in a negative way. In Acts 15, 29, there's like a sharp disagreement. And so it's kind of like a provocative word. Like, like I think about like a, a, a shock collar on a dog, where it's like there's this provocative like. Here it's used in, in a positive sense, but the word has that feel to it. So to, so to put these, so instead of using this word in isolation, like we go around and just like, stir people up in this negative way, I think, I think if we combine it with the idea of, of considering and stirring up, it, it brings us to this beautiful picture where, where we give mental energy towards our brothers in Christ to strategize how we can give a well-timed, customized nudge in order that, what does the text say? That they would 
have love and good works. So if our goal for other believers is we want to see them persevere in the faith, we want to see them love God, and we want to see them demonstrate the fruit of God working in their life, and if that's my goal for them, I'm going to think about how I can get my brothers in Christ to do that. Now, is that easy? It's not easy. But, but can we do it? And, and we absolutely can do it. Because we're called to do it, because we're equipped by Jesus to do this. And so, so we should give mental energy for how to do this. Now, what logically does this require of us? Okay. To do this well, it requires relational commitment. It requires a knowledge of somebody to be able to get close to them and go deep. So if you only see others, one, one author put it this way, if you only see others as generic hum, hum, humanity, and you compare that to Ephesians 4's command, which calls us to speak the truth in love to one another, and then later on it says, with a word that fits the occasion. You can't do that if you don't get into somebody's life. Like, it, re- it requires relational investment. It requires time. It, it requires a skill that needs to be developed. Have you met anybody that's skilled at this? I mean, I have. Th- there's guys in our church that are very good at this. In fact, I'm thinking of, there, there's several times where there's this guy in our church, and he's just like, he's so natural and smooth at this, and I love it. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident it's a mark of spiritual maturity in his life. Because there have been many times where he'll just come with like a really simple question for me, and it sounds like it's just off the top of his head, and maybe it is, but I don't think it is. And, and just the result of a simple question, I'll be thinking the stuff like, yeah, how, how am I doing as a father? Or what, what am I reading in my Bible this morning? And, and he's not trying to put on a front or be fake. Like, he, he loves me. And, like, we'll have some just, like, nice, simple little conversations throughout the church, you know, from various times from week to week. And, 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 and he's living out this. And this is the way the church should be. In fact, this takes place every day on a Sunday in multiple ways that nobody else knows about. But this should be cultivated. So this is the first part of, of, of is verse 24. Now let's look at verse 25. Now verse 25 kind of modifies verse 24. So it takes the idea of, of considering one another how to stir up, and then it, it brings further development for what this looks like. And it's interesting how the text does it, because it actually does it by giving kind of a negative and a positive. And so, in, so, so instead of saying meet together, it says don't neglect to meet. And so, so I'm putting it this way, meet for mutual maturation. I'm taking that just from what the words are in the text, but the idea of not neglecting is the idea of forsaking or abandoning. And so we should, we should think through these together. So, so don't forsake like some were drifting. So we should, first step is be there, Right? Now, now, that's a great thing, and there's a lot of people that kind of hang their hat on, I'm at church, I did my thing, but I'm sleeping through the service, right? Um, and I left right away, I didn't talk to anybody, but I was there. And every time the doors are open, I'm there. Okay, so being there is good, but you can't just be there in isolation. You need to be there for the purpose of doing what? Encouraging one another. Okay, so, so we should see these together. We, we, we don't neglect so that we can be around each other, so that we can encourage other. That's the goal. And so there's a mutual nature for this. And we need to think about this, not just in terms of what I can give, but what I can also receive. Um, and sometimes I think we view church like playing golf. 
don't know how many of you like to play golf, but, but there's, a, there's the general format of playing golf called a stroke play event, where everybody's in charge of their own score, their own ball. They might be with other people, and they might be a foursome out there, but they're pretty much looking out for number one because they want to beat the other guy, and they're taking care of their score. I'm going to put two pictures up on the screen. I don't know if these pictures mean anything to you, but they mean a lot to me because I love golf. And uh, so the picture on the top is, uh, these are two different events that take, PGA Tour of, or uh, golf events that take place in the, in, the, in the state of Minnesota. The first one is the 3M, which is uh, in Blaine every year is a PGA Tour event. This is the recent winner of that. Okay, and so this the guy, Lee Hodges, he won the event, got to go to, a, to one of the rounds, and, and it was super fun. But stroke play events, like, the guys have good golf etiquette where they're friendly to the other guys, but they're really thinking about themselves, right? Now, in contrast to that, there's a couple of different golf events, very, a lot more rare, that are in a different format. This one on the bottom is actually from the Ryder Cup in 2016 at Hazeltine, which is not too far from here. Okay, and the Ryder Cup is a different format. This is like every other year, the Europe plays against the United States, top 12 golfers in each, in the Europe or U.S., and they get together, and it's not individual stroke play. You know what it is? It's total team score. So these guys get out together, and the atmosphere changes, big time. Like, it's fun to see these golfers that all throughout the year, they're just like grinding, like they're thinking about themselves and all this, and then they get this team atmosphere, and they're just like totally different. The other guy makes a putt, and they're like, yeah! They're like reading putts for each other because my score affects him, his score affects me, and we want our team to win. You see the difference in mentality? Well, I think sometimes we view church as stroke play event, but we should view it as the Ryder Cup. I really think that. Why? Because it's not me. It's, it's we. And I think that's really in this passage. Mutual edification where we are there to encourage, that we're there to be encouraged, and both are important, both are necessary, and everybody that's a believer has something to offer because you're part of the body. Now, this is very, very important. We have to be in proximity to other people in awareness to be able to maybe even spot somebody who's falling away. Hebrews 3, 12-13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. There's a real and present danger that we or somebody else might not cross the finish line. That's very apparent in Hebrews. And all the more as we see the day approaching. So I like this image of like encouraging one another because, because we have the same goal. We want to make it to heaven. And it's not based on our own effort. It's based on what Christ has done. But we are called to finish and we're called to help others. This mutual nature is part of our, our, of our of the per- perseverance of the saints. And so I think about this image of like, I don't know if you've been to a race or run a marathon or something like that. There's this kind of this cool culture in, 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 in those type of races where it's like people are cheering the other people on to finish. And I think that that's, we kind of need to have that. I think Hebrews gives us this image, you know, even with a race where we're, we're, we're certainly the people in the hall of faith do this, but, but we with each other, we got to make it and we got to persevere. We got to obey Christ. And we're all the same. Like, nobody's better than somebody else. And if, what if we approach church that way with that mentality? Wouldn't it transform the way we view Sundays? Now, may I say that the work of Jesus directs how we relate to God, how we persevere in the faith, and how we relate to other believers. Now, 
Let's just remember what we have, okay? We have confident access. We have continual advocate. We have communal accountability. What does that then mean? We confidently come to God. We continually cling to the gospel, and we considerately compel one another. Now, this brings us to the dessert, okay? So we're almost done. Let's just finish with some dessert. Okay, we're actually going to go down in a little bit or go over there and have some apple crisp and stuff and enjoy that. But before we do that, can we just take a couple minutes, and I'm going to blitz through some hopefully helpful application for us. And as I thought through this based on the passage and based on the topic at hand, here's what I want to do. I want to bring this out in three different platters, okay? And just picture like all these different things. Take it or leave it. Maybe one applies to you. Maybe, maybe it's an idea that you, then you could share with somebody else and then springboard off of this. So here, here's, the, um, here's the three platters. It's going to be in three words, okay? Number one, prioritize the Sunday gathering. Number two is going to be prepare. And number three is going to be participate. Okay, so under each of these, I got some suggestions, maybe for application. Number one, prioritize the Sunday gathering. Here's a suggestion. Evaluate your schedule, how to best live out Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. So what place does Sunday have in your routine? What might this mean for your Saturday night plans, your Sunday morning plans? What does your use of Sunday indicate about your value system? Are you creating space to leave room for what the text talks about to do well? Is your body rested so your soul can be fed and you can edify? Or are you dead on Sunday because of unnecessary recreation and business, etc.? But seriously evaluate this. Be willing to make some adjustments. Number two, educate your mind to better understanding of the implications of this passage. Now, I, didn't, I forgot to bring them up here, but I actually have two book recommendations I can show you afterwards if you're interested. I think it's good for us to just, it's easy to get off center in the busyness of our life. Even us as, you know, th- those who are sort of like a church all the time to, to like step back and think through. And there's a book called um, Habits of Grace by David Mathis. I don't know if you, some of you have read that before. Tremendous helpful resource. And it just walks through like your spiritual disciplines, like your time in the word, prayer. And the last section talks about kind of the one anothering. Uh, how do you um, relate to, that, to the church? And I would highly recommend that. There's another book called Compelling Community by Mark, by Mark Dever that's been super helpful. Maybe also this. Um, find, Google, print off all the one another passages. Just familiarize yourself with them. And like, let that shape, not the traditions of, of everything you do on Sunday, let that shape, okay, so when I go to church, this, this, this is what I ought to do. Like your church probably should have some type of a church like commitment statement that, that includes a lot of these things. Read your church commitment statement. What, what do you agree to as a church member to do with one another? That's actually a big deal. Okay, so prioritize. This is the first platter. Second platter, prepare. Now just a number of quick things. Um, prepare for the Sunday gathering. Number one, make pre-Sunday special for your family. Consider how you can give space at a Saturday night or a Sunday morning. Don't prepare in isolation. Remember, men, if you're married or have kids, you're not just preparing yourself in your own heart, but you're, you're discipling your family. Serve your wife. Serve your kids. Do something fun to, like, you know, somebody was talking about, like, they get up and they always have a special meal on Sunday morning. They play songs, and it's just a way of making Sunday special. But, but do this. Number two, pray specifically for aspects of Sunday. Do this ahead of time. Pray for your own heart. Pray for those who are teaching and preaching. Pray for one another. I mean, pray for opportunities to share. I mean, will God answer these prayers? 
Three, read the sermon passage in advance. This is a great habit. Find out what the pastor is going to be preaching on. Get the text and just read through it. And what is that going to do for your heart? I mean, it's going to make you come with a readiness, a hunger, rather than just showing up and being like, oh, I guess we're doing this passage today. Okay? Sing or play the Sunday songs at home in advance. This is kind of a fun idea. Um, Now, some of you might feel like, okay, singing. Okay, play the songs. Um, But I found this quote from Keith Getty. He said, when you can, help your kids to sing on a Sunday in church by singing the songs of the family beforehand. There are a few things more lovely than the expression on the face of a young child who can ju- just realize that he or she knows the words of the next song that are being sung in church. Okay, and finally, with this, uh, write down some simple, thought-filled questions that you can ask. And, and don't make this complicated, because I don't think it is. Like, it, what, what if the question is, how can I pray for you? I mean, that's a great open-ended starter question. But, but some, maybe it might be, require more thought because if you really want to get to know somebody, it might be like thinking of some strategic questions for the purpose of getting to know them so that you can encourage them. Um, but, but do this. It's preparation. This is like how we should think about coming. Okay, and then the last category, this last platter with several little things on here is going to be participate. And I, and I thought about this in more of a, like an anatomical evaluation. Okay, so just, just stick with me on this. Maybe to do a checklist of all the possible ways that you can participate through different body parts. Okay, for, first of all, your voice. Come to church ready to sing in both a vertical, with a vertical voice of exaltation and a horizontal voice of edification. I don't know if you thought about singing in this way, but I think it's very scriptural because if Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, so we do sing to exalt God, but there is a, a mutual participation aspect to singing that's very real. In fact, let me give you a quote. Um, Matt Merker said it this way, Songs of praise to God are also tools for teaching each other God's word. When you become a church member, you also become a Sunday school teacher by opening up your mouth in congregational singing. That's a real thing. To be word-filled and we're like, confessing, I believe this, and brother, sister, we need to hold to these things together. This is, and it's not, who cares if you have a good voice? I mean, the singing here is awesome, just guys singing together. It's not about who has a nice voice. This is what it's about. Next, your hands. Use your hands to take notes as both an expositional and applicational listener. So actually, Take notes to find out the meaning of the passage, but do so in a way that's personalizing what you're learning. And maybe your notes are the basis of a family conversation or the the basis of answering the question when somebody says, what are you learning from the passage? Do this. Participate. It's not a spectator thing. Come to church and participate. Seat. And by seat, I mean your seat. Okay. Strategize where you sit at the Sunday gathering. Um... Keith Getty said, sit somewhere at church where your kids can be surrounded by strong singing. There's lots of different strategic ways, but sometimes we get like, this is my spot. And I've had this spot for generations, right? Well, what if you sat in a way that put yourself around some other people that you want to get to know? Every week, move around. I mean, like, think about that. Like, you, you, can, you can do this to obey the passage. 
And it transforms how you view Sunday. It's not about you. It's, it's about mutual edification. Okay, next, feet. Have your feet that are unhurried that will stay for fellowship. This can be, this can be a challenge because we're busy. We've got a lot going on. Um, but but this, is, this is where... This is where this is where edification and growth takes place. This is very, very important. Your eyes. Have your eyes look with a selfless awareness, awareness to look for the needs of others. Like look for drifters. Have eyes that expand beyond your comfort sphere. Okay, the tendency is we get in church and we just like talk to our two people. But use your eyes to obey the text. Your ears. Use your ears to, to be eager to be a good listener. This is actually a tough skill, isn't it? In the, in the end of that book, the Mathis book that I mentioned, he's got a, a really nice section on six suggestions to be a good listener with other people in your church. Phenomenal. And I recommend it. Because, like, I'm not a great listener. In fact, we all probably struggle with being good listeners. And, and this is important to, to obey the text. And finally, your tongue. Use your tongue to be ready to ask questions for the purpose of getting into somebody's life. Talk about life for the purpose of being more skilled at building others. Talk about the Vikings game. Great, do it. Yeah, get into their life. But for the purpose of stirring them up to love and good works. But but use this God-given gift to obey the text. So we conclude. Let the work of Jesus direct how you relate to God how you persevere in the faith, and how you relate to other believers. And men, let's do this on Sundays. And it's okay to do it Monday through Saturday as well, which we'll hear more about tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the instruction of your word. Would you take your word, plant it deep within us, and bear fruit as we want to be men that are pleasing in your sight and Live in obedience and perseverance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.